So we're getting back to more horror. <laughs> it just seems to be a trend, doesn't it? What's funny, if I could segue for just a second, some of you may know that during the Trek Rewrite Project, uh, I, I don't know where we're going to be at by the time this video goes live. Uh, from my perspective, we're still back at Enterprise, but obviously we're mapping stuff well in advance. That's part of the point, you know, to, to for, uh, front load a lot of the storytelling. One of the seasons is intended to be a season all about the Borg. That's going to be a Voyager season. Now, you're probably thinking, how do you do that? Well, imagine an entire season of barely surviving, barely scrimping by horror, and you get the idea. Now, I've had that idea in my head for years and years and years. In fact, I even referenced it all the way back during the Voyager Ruminations, if some of you remember that. So, I don't know if any of that idea came from Enterprise Season 3, because they seem to really be hammering that point in. And I know they're going to keep doing that in the future. So, Jonathan Fernandez actually wrote this one. He was involved, he's been involved in writing before, and will continue to be involved in writing later. He's one of the big season three writers, one of the new people they brought into the writing room in order to try and shake things up and get some new ideas. And here we are. This is also, uh, well, this is also an interesting one to talk about. Livingston, David Livingston did this one. He is, as always, you know, my, my favorite uh, Star Trek director, and he continues to earn that title. But what I find myself wondering, they actually invented, invented, built several new sets for this. And I was thinking about it. They also build a new set for the spheres later. And then there's the council chambers. And then there's a few other things that they'll do. And what I'm trying to say is, despite the fact that the budget went down and the number of episodes got cut, I mean, as I said, budget to go down is kind of a strange statement, but you get my point. They nevertheless kept trying to put the money into the show and used it carefully and wisely. It's almost like they decided, okay, things are getting real, so we have to really think about it and actually be good at managing the budget with regards to the show and really spend the money where we think it's going to really help. Now, whether that's a true statement or whether that's even a successful effect or not, that's up to you to decide. I'm actually curious what you think about that one, but it's interesting to think about, isn't it? So, <clears throat> this is the shortest teaser in Star Trek history. I double-checked this just to make sure because, you know, there's Discovery and Picard and all that, which I haven't even watched. Um, but, yeah, no, this, this, this actually manages to beat everything else at near 18 seconds. It's also extremely effective. T'Pol is freaking out and just lets out this unearthly scream and chop right in the middle of the screen. Bam. It's been a long road. Why is this song here? Oh, sorry, sorry. God, talk about tonal whiplash. I've started skipping the intros, finally, but I did hear the first few seconds of that, and I just, I burst out laughing, because it's like, oh my god! Da -da 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 -da. It just, anyways. <clears throat> Point being, it's very effective. It's another one of those good examples of a cold open, which is designed for people who know what they're looking at. Even someone who doesn't can kind of get the general idea, but only someone who is invested in this and knows what a Vulcan is, who T'Pol is, and what the stakes are would be able to look at this and be like, okay, something's a little bit wrong there in order to be able to be invested in this and actually pull what they need out of this. I'm just pointing this out because season three in general tends to lead more towards cold opens that are designed for people who are already invested in Trek. 
Now, I'm usually in favor of that, but it feels like an odd decision since one of the biggest issues they were having at this point in time was they were bleeding out viewers because of season one and two and because there were other things going on. Nemesis and the fact that, you know, Star Trek in general was kind of on a downswing and had been since the launch of DS9. Actually, that's not fair. It's been on a downswing since I think season five of TNG. I've seen the charts. I've seen the viewing figures, and while those are obviously vague and may or may not actually be accurate, the fact of the matter is it peaked sometime during DNG and then was a nonstop decline across all three shows, excuse me, four shows ever since, with the occasional peak when a new show starts, and then another peak, and then a final peak, and then it's just a nonstop descent. With... One notable exception, which we actually are not at yet. But anyways, my point being, you'd think they would kind of try to aim these a little bit more to getting people who weren't already into the show into it. I don't know. Maybe that could be argued to be, you know, that they're... So, okay. There's obvious marketing, and then there's subversive marketing, which is something that usually is done badly. But to try and do it in this manner would be... How do I vocalize this? Trying to show how much this is not for someone who's new to the show could itself get someone invested enough to get into the show to understand the context of what they're seeing. That's a that's an approach to marketing. It's a very risky approach. It's the reason why most people don't actually do it, but it can work because the whole point is it has to provoke interest. And once the interest is provoked, they realize, well, they don't have context. And the only way to get context is to watch the show. So... So we find out that people are starting to skip meals. Yep. <laughs> I actually didn't eat breakfast this morning. Not really on purpose. I just, I had some errands that I had to get done today. And then because that cut into my recording time, I had to immediately get back into recording. I didn't have time to cook breakfast. So don't worry, I plan to have lunch. But yeah, I just point this out though, because, well, how many of you have ever been at that point where things are just sufficiently bad that you just, you don't really feel like eating? Like, you might have the hunger pains, but you're not actually hungry. It's more like it's like your body's going, hey. And you're just like, <sighs> And, yeah, this kind of a low morale scenario would probably incline itself towards such a thing, especially since they haven't exactly been doing well so far. In fact, for the most part, everything they've been doing has been making things worse, not better. Including this episode, actually. But I digress. So they decide to redo movie night, get some morale going. Yeah, no, that that's also legit. These people probably need something other than being drugged up every day by flocks. Because, duh. <sighs> so, there's a very, very, very small scene I want to call your attention to. It's the bit where Tucker invites DePaul to movie night. That's it. But, once again, the actors know how to act off of each other perfectly. I can't even describe it properly. You'd have to just see it. There's a familiarity there with just, hey, so what are you doing Tuesday night? I do not currently have plans. Well, you know, we got this thing, this you know, mess hall, 1900. And her response is just, movie night. <laughs> and then it's just, and there's just this little moment between the two. It's really quiet, but there's just that understanding there. She did enjoy movie night, if you're remembering. And... Obviously, the two are not only close, but getting closer, especially thanks to the neuropressure. So the idea that the two would be fam uh, not only familiar with each other, but comfortable enough with each other to be able to do that speaks volumes. 
It also is one of the reasons why I keep gushing about the Tucker and T'Pol friendship and the connection between the two. It's because, remember the way the two were all the way back in season one, and remember the way the two are now. It has been a hell of an arc, and they have been getting better as time goes on. And it's something that in the rewrite I want to very much maintain, because duh, right? Now whether it eventually goes romantic or not, that's a little more, more debatable, but that's not yet. So, this then leads to them deciding to beam in an area of spatial anomalies. I'm not sure why you decided that was a good idea. They beam over. Well, they, they fly over, actually. Lighting, new sets, the Vulcan attacks. Ah! They have to stun them multiple times because they're zombies. Even in the script, these were referred to... Uh, not in the script, sorry. In, the, in like the, the notes that they hand out for props and costumes and designs for the makeup... Vulcan zombies was what they were being referred to as. And if you pay attention to the episode, yeah, no, they, they are zombies. They are zombies who have a brain because they will act and take action, but they are still zombies. So, yeah, pretty much straight up there. They uh, use the lighting to good effect. They have the new sets I already mentioned. Those new stun sticks, those work really well, don't they? Possibly too well. Earlier, there was a bit where they shot the reptilians multiple times and it did nothing. And yet when they hit them with the stun stick, it actually worked. What does the stun stick do that the stun gun doesn't? I'm actually curious. But anyways, it's a similar situation here, where the stun stick tends to work better than the actual stun setting, where you have to shoot them multiple times to actually get them to stay down for any period of time. Yeah. This is when the Mako says, I'm going to set it to kill because stun isn't working. And they're like, no, we're not. It's a rescue mission. Huh. What's interesting about that is the Mako is arguably both correct and incorrect with that statement. On the one hand, if he's thinking about it in this in the framework of we are against an enemy force, that stun is not working against, then yeah, setting to kill is absolutely the correct call. The problem is they are not ostensibly going against an enemy force. They don't know at this point in time that this is an unsalvageable situation. And thus, with that lack of information, it's more of a judgment call. This is why I say it could be correct or incorrect. Because sending it to kill was probably the correct decision in hindsight, but with the information they had at the time, was not so clear-cut. I just wanted to mention that, because T'Pol is the one who reacts violently, and it is Archer who finally gives the command, no, 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 keep it on stun. That leads me to a question, though. Why don't you just keep stunning him? Just hold the button down for a second. We know you can do that, at least they could back in TNG. Then again, um, <laughs> it does make me wonder a little bit, because we all know, and this is something that is pre-established Trek lore, that stunning someone for too long or too hard will actually kill them. So, hmm. Anyways, <clears throat> this leads to the B-plot. Now, what's funny is, my first thought is, why is the B-plot here? I found an interview from Mr. Livingston who, who said the same thing. Why is the B-plot here? Why, why is this part of this episode? It do, it just kind of interrupts the episode. And all it is is Tucker and Travis trying to go and get some frickin' Trillion D. Which, okay, that's cool, and it's something that has to happen, but its only actual purpose in the episode is to make sure that the shuttle pod is damaged so they can't rescue them immediately. That's it. Otherwise, it might as well not even be present. You could just have the Trillium D collected off-camera. Nothing is done character-wise. Nothing is done plot-wise. It's just, let's go get some Trellium D. Do, do, do. Now, I was thinking about why they had it in, and then I realized something. This episode came in short. 
Now, this episode came in short as is, as in even though they added this padding scenes with the B-plot, it still came in short, so they had to add the dream sequence at the end. So, that's probably why the B-plot is there. I still think we could have fleshed it out with something else, anything else, really. But, you know, whatever. So we have zombies. I just realized this is actually the second group of zombies we've had on this show. No, seriously, because we already had them back in, uh, what was it? Uh, Extinction, or whatever the name of it was. You know, the one I gave a lamentation to. Uh, looking at my notes here. Sorry. Why don't, why do the comms suddenly stop working? I, I was bothered by that, and I kept waiting for them to explain it. They never did. Because, of course, the phones stop working in a, in a zombie movie. But really, why do the comms stop working? Especially since they start working later on. Now, I know, I know. They go up to the bridge and they use the, the ship comms. But why do their comms, which were working, suddenly stop? I, whatever, whatever. Maybe I missed something? Maybe they were piggybacking off the shuttle pod. And so when the zombies went to the shuttle pod, they disable it. But when they get to their shuttle pod, it's working fine. Other than the clamp. So, I don't know. So, anywho, <clears throat> they, uh, what does that word say? I have no idea what that says. Sorry, I'm trying to figure out what this note says. <laughs> I guess it doesn't matter because I can't figure it out. But I know the next thing I wanted to talk about anyways. Now, this is a surprisingly human thing. Even though we are not Vulcans, this is the kind of thing that we can appreciate. Uh, imagine for a moment that you have certain tools, mental tools, emotional tools, that you use to try and cope with things, to deal with things. Probably not that hard to imagine, because you probably do. Now imagine that for some pseudo-magical reason, those don't work anymore. Maybe it's because you need a physical component of it, like maybe there's a certain scent you use, or maybe like taking a hot shower, or maybe eat, enjoying a good meal, or meditating on the floor, whatever. Some, there's some component that is now absent, so that that tool is now removed from your kit. And now you're going through some horrible stuff, and the tools which you have used for most of your life in order to adapt and cope with it are no longer applicable. And now you have put yourself into Paul's shoes. This is made further bad by the fact that this thing is actually sufficiently toxic to her and to Vulcans in general as to make them legitimately irrational. The word they keep using is paranoiac. And this does appear to be legitimate paranoia. You know, oh my god, my socks are trying to kill me kind of paranoia. So, yeah, no, this, this feels pretty horrible. And this is what I want to praise Jolene Blaylock. Now, I've said before that I was... Uh, let, let me let me walk this back a little bit. I actually have mentioned that I was surprised, you, you can go and hate me for this, at how good of an actress she was as I was going through season one and two. I stand by that statement, both the surprise, because I didn't remember it, and the fact that she is actually a good actress. I've commented on this on some of the live streams where we talk about the Trek rewrite stuff and how I have faith in the actress to be able to pull some of the character bits that we've been coming up with for her. And... I've actually had people say, no, you're an idiot. She's a terrible actress. And <laughs> I think those people either have a different definition of acting than I do, or they haven't seen the show in recent memory, or haven't been paying attention to her specific acting. Because she's actually quite good at small little details and nuanced moments, especially. This brings me to this episode. At the very beginning of the episode, she is on edge. And it's noticeable. 
However, it's the way she presents it. She, she, she does her face in a slightly different configuration. I can picture how to do it. I'm not sure if I could do it on camera here, but rather than a normal face, she's just got a little bit more of a stretch on her eyes and they're just a little bit more open than they normally would be and her mouth is just a little bit more talked than it otherwise would be. And she's clearly on edge. It's just she's on edge in her very non-emotionally expressive Vulcan kind of a way. This then, and now to show what a normal expression would look like in contrast to that, this then immediately contrasts everyone else who's just kind of because she's actually dealing with this less well than they are because her discipline isn't really assisting her with the overall situation, because she has the logic and smarts to realize just how bad things are. Then they go into the Trillium D field, and what happens over the next several scenes is that just gets worse and worse and worse. And again, credit to the actress and probably Livingston as well, because each scene she's in successively, she shows a few more layers of that frustration and that edgy, that, that anxiety, that being on edge. Until it gets to the point where probably the moment where it, it spills out the most is as she's trying to repair the thing. And Archer says, can you repair it? To Paul. And her response is, what? You know, one of those quick, angry kind of responses. And then he's like, can you repair it? Yes. And this just takes her a moment to, to process the thought and get past the anger and be like, okay, yes, I think, I think we can do something about this. But her paranoia does kind of spiral a little bit from this point onwards. This is a good time to talk about Hawkins. One of the values of the Makos is that they're effectively red shirts, but aren't actually treated in the red shirt trope. They are the security guys and gals and as a, you know, usually that's the people that Star Trek treats as expendable to die for, to prove the situation is serious, right? Whether they're red shirts or yellow shirts. It's, it's the same trope, right? The red shirt trope, as I've talked about before. But they don't just kill off Makos left and right. They don't just do that. They actually bother to think about when and how any Mako will die. Now, some will die, spoilers, but they don't just do it to prove the situation is serious. Point in fact, Hawkins survives this episode, despite the fact that at multiple points in the episode it looks like he wouldn't, to prove the situation is serious, but no, he manages. This also leads me to talking about the recurring characters thing of season three in general. Now, I've talked about this before, most notably in Deep Space Nine, but DS9 had a, I forget if it was season two or three, had a weird thing where they would introduce a character that had a reason to show up again and then would not. And, you know, the potential for a recurring character, which was just dropped, and then they would show up and then they would drop them. It wasn't until they really started the Dominion stuff that they actually started embracing the concept of recurring characters. And we started seeing the same guest stars come back repeatedly and to good effect, in my opinion. My reason for bringing this up is I feel like someone somewhere kind of learned that lesson because there's actually a lot of recurring guest guest stars in season three. All of the Zindi Council, uh, Degra himself, most of the Makos, if not all of the Makos. There are several instances of this throughout this, which I'm not going to list all of them, obviously. But that brings me to my point. You're probably wondering why I haven't done that. Usually when a guest star shows up, I bother to say, and this person playing this character, you may know them from these other things. The thing is, almost all of these guest stars are long-time Trek alumni. These are people who have been guest stars in multiple other shows, and in most cases, in multiple other roles. That's the other interesting thing. They dipped into the well of guest stars they've already had. Now, whether that was a good move or a bad is, of course, a debatable thing, but it feels like a deliberate move to me. Now, I don't know for certain. 
But that feels like the kind of thing I would do too. I would look back and be like, okay. And I would try to, I would try to contact HR or something. Like, I want a list of guest stars who ticked the check. Cause there's a thing you can do when you're a guest star on a show and basically say, I'm interested in coming back. And it, it's like part of an exit survey sort of a thing. I don't even know if they do this anymore on television, but they did back in the nineties. So, you know, in the early aughts. So they find me the list of the guest stars that hit the check mark. Okay. Okay. Here's them. Let's cross, cross reference it. Let's see which roles they played. And then I would sit down and I would watch that episode and determine how good of a job they did. And they're like, okay. And then I would come up with a list of guest stars that I feel did a good job. And I would invite them back to be the recurrings for season three. Now, that's just what I would do. But by evidence on screen, I think that's what they actually did. Like I said, most of these guest stars are some of the better ones. Not the best. We don't have James Sloyan, for example. But we do have some legitimately good guest stars who have been in quite a few things before and tend to know what they're doing. Anyway, sorry, I wanted to talk about that here because I forgot to talk about it in Zindi. That's my bad. And this is the first time it really came up because I had the note about recurring characters. Anyways... Another little small character point. This is a, there's a lot of little cool background animation stuff, for lack of a better way to put it. And I put this squarely on Mr. Livingston because he, he knows how to do this kind of stuff. There's this bit where she starts to freak out a little bit and she grabs for her gun. The moment she makes that motion, Hawkins has his gun on her. This is several seconds before Reed and Archer realize the severity of it and also decide to pull out their weapons. Now, I've said for years that Starfleet is military, and I stand by that statement. But there's also a difference between military and trained infantry. You know, a soldier, someone who is a frontline gropos, right? Ground pounder. So you could see the distinction right here. The captain and the security chief are like, oh, the person who's used to being in the field, no hesitation whatsoever. Anyways, <clears throat> so this leads to the you know the conclusion of the big big traumatic get across oh my god zombies and then they escape cool this leads to the dilemma so you found a substance that you know thanks to that pirate a few episodes ago is going to help protect your ship against some of these spatial anomalies please ignore the fact that a spatial anomaly affected an asteroid completely. D densely packed with trillium D. Let's just ignore that for a moment. So supposedly, asterisk, this will help keep the ship safe from the anomalies. Now that's something they kind of need, because as we've already seen, the anomalies are not only irritating to deal with, but actually damaging. Again, see the pirate episode. One of your crew members is someone who has a toxic reaction to that. What do you do? That's actually a pretty good dilemma. Archer says, no, I'm not going to sacrifice this. And what's funny is Archer automatically makes the moral choice, the right choice, and she automatically makes the correct choice. I will you drop me on the habitat, unhabited, or drop me in an inhabitable planet. And he says, no, I'm not going to let go of the crew. I can't let go of what makes us human. Remember that, by the way. What I like best about this is the dilemma isn't really solved in this episode. And, well, that's the final thing I wanted to talk about. So she has her nightmare. Pretty decent sequence. Not much to say about that. And then we have the another value of continuity. 
I know, I know, I gush about continuity constantly, so please forgive me for continuing to do so, but... One of the other benefits of continuity, especially string continuity, is events don't have to be wrapped up by the by the closing credits. Back in the day, when I used to watch TNG with my mom, sometimes we'd get to the point where the episode had eight, five minutes left until the episode was over. And in those cases, it, it, it didn't happen all that often, but the, the events of the episode weren't resolved yet. And so mom and I are just sitting there kind of making fun of the episode. It's like, oh yeah, sure, they're totally... Because we know everything's going to be wrapped up by the closing credits, because that's what Trek does. And it just... It was something that was mockery-worthy, for lack of a better way to put it, because of the fact that we know nothing's really going to stand, or nothing's really going to last, and nothing's really going to matter once those credits roll. Next week, it'll be completely forgotten. Now, Trek has been kind of pushing against that and pushing away from that for years, Sometimes to some success, and sometimes to not. It's actually one of the things that actually latched me into Deep Space Nine was the fact that sometimes, not always, those events would matter for a future episode. So you can imagine when I saw Season 3, you remember I talked about my unusual path through the Enterprise, for the first time and I noticed that things were not wrapping up at the end of the episode, I was like, oh. And that's what really caught my attention, because all of a sudden things can not only matter... They can matter going forwards. We can actually have consequences. We can actually have impact. And we will see the impact of this episode going forwards. As ever, hope you enjoyed. See you next time.